Amen. You can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 10 today for our passage, but I'd like to read um, from chapter 2, verse 17 on down through chapter 3, verse 10, just to set our minds in the context. And so I'll do that now. We'll start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. It says, But we, brothers, having been taken away from you for a short while, in face but not in heart, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not even you before our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our joy and glory. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we were pleased to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, just as it happened and as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to know about your faith, lest somehow the tempter has tempted you and our labor be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always remember us kindly, longing to see us just as we also long to see you for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God because of you? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. We see the Apostle Paul coming to the end of his personal correspondence with his beloved spiritual family in our section today. As the individuals who have placed chapter and verse designations for us have rightly done, we have three more verses until we enter into the more doctrinal section of First Thessalonians. What we've been looking at for the past three chapters has literally just been personal correspondence. And so if it feels like it's very heartfelt, if it feels like it's less theologically heavy, that would be the reason why. But make, make no mistake about it, deep theology runs throughout this entire personal correspondence. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from the city of Corinth while he's in the midst of dealing with that church and all of their issues. And if you read this letter from the beginning, you'll see that the Apostle was experiencing tremendous hardship during this time in his ministry and that he very much needed to be encouraged. As you'll remember, he had been chased out of Philippi in Acts chapter 16 and then out of Thessalonica and out of Berea and also he had been ridiculed out of Athens as a man who is teaching nonsense in Acts chapter 17. And now, while he's in Corinth, Paul is facing further opposition, both from inside that church and outside that church. And while all of this is happening, the apostle's mind was consumed with concern for the Thessalonians. His concern was for the resiliency of their faith. And Paul needed to be encouraged in a way that would assure him that his labor was not in vain, as he says in chapter 3, verse 5. 
Maybe he was thinking to himself, would these brand new converts walk away from the Lord in the midst of their persecution? Or would they grow stronger in their commitment and love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul longed to be with them to protect them as a father would and to nourish them as a loving mother would. But Satan, the adversary of God's family, had hindered Paul from doing the thing that he wanted to do. So Paul sent Timothy, their older brother in the faith, to reinforce, to strengthen, and to encourage them as to their faith. And the last Timothy finally returned to Paul after quite a while, as we'll see, with good news concerning the Thessalonians. Indeed, it was found that they possessed eternal life and that their faith and love was growing and that their mutual affection for the beloved apostle was as much as his affection for them. And because of this, Paul was refreshed. He was revitalized. He was encouraged from what was perhaps a very discouraging time in his ministry. His joy was a direct result of the genuineness of the Thessalonians' faith, which is clearly evident if you just for one moment, turn to chapter 1 and look at verses 2 through 5. It's clearly evident that he was overjoyed because of the results of their faith. It says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father, knowing, brothers beloved by God, your election. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance, just as you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And again, in chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, he says, And for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also is at work in you who believe. Despite Paul's unending concern for their faith, the apostle could now rest assured that this group of believers was in fact the real thing. They truly did possess, possess eternal life right now. And as we'll see, the fact that they possessed eternal life gave them a quality of life that is simply unavailable to non-believers. In the midst of extremely difficult times, in the midst of life-threatening opposition, the true church of Jesus Christ can indeed experience supernatural joy and supernatural comfort. The true church of Jesus Christ has a fervent love for God and for one another, even when everything around them seems to be crumbling, because we know that the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, has overcome the best efforts of our adversary. And that ultimately, our hope of heaven, our hope of eternity with God, has been secured by the precious blood of the Lamb. The gospel of Jesus Christ provides us with soul-strengthening encouragement in the midst of life-threatening struggles. And this is the quality of eternal life that is available to every believer right now. This is the reality, this is the theology that undergirds our text today, that undergirds this personal correspondence. And so I've titled this sermon today, Eternal Life Now. And I've divided it up into three points. The first characteristic of eternal life now is faith working through love, as seen in verse 6. The second characteristic of eternal life now is comfort in the midst of suffering, as we see in verses 7 through 8. 
And the third characteristic of eternal life now is joy-filled intercessory prayer in verses 9 through 11. So let's go to the first characteristic of eternal life now, faith working through love. Verse 6, but now Timothy has come to us from you. And we'll stop there. You see, the Apostle Paul is overjoyed because he's been waiting for a very long time for this news from the beloved brother in the Lord, Timothy. And the phrase, but now, in the Greek connotes a sense of immediacy or being in the present moment. The Berean Study Bible translates it like this, but just now. It's as if uh, the Apostle Paul was ready and waiting and Timothy came through the door. Paul dropped every single thing that he was doing and said, let me hear it. And he started to write this letter. This reveals the anticipation of Paul and his eager longing to hear this report from Timothy. Again, you'll remember in chapter 2, verse 17, the text that we started with last week, the phrase, been taken away from you, literally means to be orphaned. Paul was bereaved of his spiritual children. You have to understand, this is how Paul thought about these people. They mattered to him as if they were his own children. And so, he's eagerly waiting this news. Now, how long did he have to wait? That's the question we need to know so that we can get into the heart and mind of the apostle. Well, if you want to take a couple of hours on Google Maps and chart out the distances between all these places, you could do that. Or you could just let me tell you, he waited for about three to four months at a bare minimum to hear this news. And when you look at the events recorded in Acts chapter 17 through 18, while Paul was very busy in Berea, Athens, and Corinth, Timothy was also busy in ministry. And he went down to Athens with Paul, and Paul sent him back to Thessalonica to go find out about the church that the Lord, through the faithfulness of Paul, birthed in Thessalonica. And Paul is ridiculed out of Athens after preaching the gospel in the Areopagus in front of the erudite philosophers of Athens. And he goes to Corinth, and he's waiting. He's waiting, and he's waiting to hear whether or not his children are alive, whether or not his spiritual children do, in fact, possess eternal life now. And so, Timothy comes to us, it says in verse 6, and he's brought us something. He's brought us good news. He's brought us good news of your faith and your love. Literally, the word uh, translated good news here is the word that is used to translate the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the only place in the entirety of the New Testament where this phrase is used when it's not directly associated with the preaching of the gospel. Now, Timothy didn't preach the gospel to Paul, obviously, but he did report about the fruit of the gospel that had been preached by Paul to the Thessalonians. And what was this fruit that was so refreshing for Paul to hear about? Well, look at your text. It says this, he brought us the good news of your faith and your love. Faith and love. Paul was refreshed and revitalized to hear the good news of the gospel bearing fruit in faith and love in these mature believers. Indeed, Proverbs 25, 25 assuredly was on the apostle's mind. Like cold water to a weary soul, so is a good report from a distant land, it says. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who proclaims good news, who announces peace and proclaims good news of good things, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. 
Based on Timothy's testimony, it was evident that God was reigning in the hearts of the Thessalonians. Now remember, our key point from last Sunday, the faith of the Thessalonians was Paul's primary concern, and it was this faith that the tempter was attempting to take. It was this, it was the fruits of this faith that the tempter was attempting to squash. This divinely bestowed gift of faith from God the Father was growing strong despite the opposition. Now let's turn, let's just turn again to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, obviously was written after 1 Thessalonians, and it gives us insight. Did this continue in the Thessalonian church? It says this, Well, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is only fitting, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of each one of you toward one another increases all the more, so that we ourselves boast about you amongst the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. You see, this was the real thing. The Thessalonians were the real deal, and their faith and love were growing in tandem. This is a significant observation for us to see here, that faith and love are connected. They grow or shrink together, and their presence indicates a genuinely converted believer. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, includes hope alongside faith and love, and it says this, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Of course, 1 Corinthians 13, 13 is the famous Pauline Trinity. He says, but now abide faith, hope, and love. And these three, but the greatest of these is love. You see, these texts reveal to us the Pauline Trinity of characteristics that exhibit the possession of eternal life. Without faith, without hope, without love, it's questionable whether you have eternal life. That's the point. This is why Paul was so overjoyed. Faith grounds us. It grounds our hope in truth. Our hope encourages us to persevere until either we die or the Lord comes back. And our love motivates us to continue to serve our Lord, and one another. And the Thessalonians possessed this. They had it. And Paul is saying that he was refreshed by the fact that the Thessalonians had it. Through their faith and love, he could indeed tell objectively that they were members of the family of God. He could rest assured because their faith was working itself out through love. A.W. Tozer says of this relationship between faith and love in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, quote, faith is an organ of knowledge and love an organ of experience. God in Christ came to us in the incarnation 
In the atonement, he reconciled us to himself. And by faith and love, we enter into and lay hold on Jesus Christ. Essentially, what's being said here is that because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, by his grace and through the faith which he's given us, we come to exhibit the characteristics of those who possess eternal life, faith, hope, and love. Now, just a brief note on the word faith. Faith is God's divine persuasion of the truthfulness and effectiveness of his word. The root word, pistis, is a word which literally means to persuade, and that's the word that the word faith comes out of. And so we can understand, based on what we learned last week, about how faith is always 100% a divine supernatural gift of God because it requires the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of God's Word to birth eternal life in an, in an individual. That this persuasion is, in fact, divine persuasion. And also in secular antiquity, this word pistis refers to a guarantee, a warranty. They would use it economically. It's a warranty on a product. So, in Scripture then, faith is God's warranty, certifying that the revelation that He has birthed in the believer will indeed come to pass. It will indeed come to pass. Faith is a persuasion from God that we receive from Him as He grants it to the believer that guarantees that what He says is going to happen will happen. And our faith, as we continue to read, study, and pray through Scripture, will indeed grow. It will indeed grow. Our confidence, our trust in the Word, because of the divine persuasion, Will be, even, will be rooted even more deeply as we continue to be fed and nourished by the Word of God, as we continue to be on our knees daily in prayer for the lost, for the church of Jesus Christ as well. And as we continue to apply the Word of God to our life, we will consequently grow in the love and faith that are found only in those who possess eternal life. Here's the key point on the relationship between faith and love. Our faith relates to our knowledge of the Word, which must be accompanied with the application of the Word to our lives in order for that faith to be worked out in love. You see the relationship between the two? The Word is central. We must grow in our knowledge of who, the, of who the Word is, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we must apply the teachings of Christ, the teachings of Scripture to our life in the power of the Holy Spirit in order for the love of God to be made manifest in our life. Knowledge of the Word without the application of its teaching to one's life leads to the grossest type of arrogance. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. And this arrogance manifests that that person is either totally misunderstanding the nature of the Christian life or they're not actually a child of God. Remember Christ's own words in Luke 8, 21. My mother and my brother are these who hear the word of God and do it. 
Those who believe the word of God and who do the word of God exhibit that they are, in fact, in the family of God. And these are they who realize the possession of eternal life right now, right now. John 13, 35, our Lord says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, getting back to verse 6, this love, this faith, these are a function of the knitted hearts between the Apostle Paul and the Thessalonians and the knitted hearts that all believers share by virtue of their union in the body of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 6, and that you always remember us kindly, longing to see us just as we long to see you. This refreshing truth about the Thessalonians' reciprocal love for the Apostle Paul is just simply part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. Simply that. Love for God and love for one another are the distinguishing marks of the children of God. This love is not the sort of transactional love that the world refers to when they say love, by the way. Uh, The type of love that says, I'll love you if you love me, and if you don't love me, I want nothing to do with you. That's the love of the world. No, the love that we're discussing here is the supernatural love of God. This is the love of deliberate choice. He loves those who are unlovable. That starts with me, and that's all of you outside of Christ. We are not lovable in and of ourselves. And praise God that his love is not dependent upon that. His love is not dependent upon my own ability to keep his law. His love is not dependent upon how much I think about him, how much I read his word, how much I pray, blah, 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 blah. No. The love of God is the deliberate love of choice that says, I will love you because I desire to love you regardless of how you treat me. And that's the love he calls us to show to one another and then to the world. John three sixteen and many others evidence that this love really is measured by sacrifice. Listen to it. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love just as Christ loved us and what? Gave himself up for us. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, which earlier on in that chapter, he defines sinners as the enemies of God. He sent Christ, Christ to die for us. <laughs> he sent Christ to die for his own enemies, which, by the way, he created. This is the love of God. This is the unstoppable love of God that is not contingent upon how the giver is treated. It is the holy love of God that is demonstrated in the sacrifice for the sake of others, even one's enemies. And so I ask you, are you growing in faith? Are you growing in this type of love? What does the evidence of your life reveal? Is your understanding of love just good feelings about people with no sacrifice to back it up. If that's the case, I would call you to question whether or not that's the love of God. Is your faith growing? Is your divine persuasion of the truthfulness and veracity and historicity of the written word of God 
being rooted deeply on a daily basis? Are you still kind of like, I don't really know about that Genesis 1, you know, story of origins things, you know. I'm not so sure that, you know, evolution's, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of a thing, isn't it? It's kind, of, it's kind of there, right? No. Are you growing in the divine persuasion? Are you growing in the love of God? And if you are, if you are, this brings your leadership joy. This should bring your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ joy. But most importantly, you know who it brings joy to? God. God. Studying God's Word should never just be looked at as, a, as simply an academic exercise where we just amass facts about God. Now, these facts must penetrate your heart for your faith and your love to be growing. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 through 13 say, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. Is the word of God penetrating your heart? Are you divinely persuaded of its truthfulness, of its historicity, of its veracity, Does your time in God's word produce firm convictions about the truth of Christ that lead you to repentance from sin and towards worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and service for your brother and sister? Does your time in God's word produce a genuine compassion in you towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? Does your time in God's word produce love, respect, and trust for those whom the Lord has placed over you in the leadership of the church? Or do you still have secret displeasure about the things that they teach and secret displeasure about how they apply God's word? It did in the Thessalonians, and it should in you. Faith working itself through love was seen by Paul in the Thessalonians, and thus they evidenced the fruit of eternal life right now. Moving on to our second characteristic then of eternal life now, comfort in the midst of suffering. Verses 7 through 8. Paul says, for this reason, brothers, because of the refreshing news that the Thessalonians were exhibiting true conversion, Paul's comforted in the midst of an extremely uncomfortable situation. He took great delight in the fact that his spiritual children were walking in the faith and love that are characteristic of all of those who possess eternal life. And this pleases all pastors, by the way. 3 John 4, the Apostle John says, I have no greater joy than this than to hear and my children are walking in the truth. Because of the obedience to the truth, Paul says of the Thessalonians, I can have comfort and joy in the midst of my dire circumstances. And in chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, just listen again to how he refers to these people. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting? Is it not even you before our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our joy and our glory. Paul knew what it was like to have churches with turmoil and distrust and strife. He knew the pain of people trying to wreak havoc in his ministry. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10 Paul makes reference to just one example of this. 
He says, I marvel that you, Galatians, are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I'll say it again. If any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let that man be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be considered a slave of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.28, again, give us further insight into the anxiety, the deep concern that Paul had over the churches. He said, apart from such external things, referring to the list of physical sufferings that the Apostle Paul endured, and by the way, he endured tremendous amounts of physical suffering. If you want to read that list, it's in 2 Corinthians 11. But he says, besides all of that, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Some translations translate that word concern, anxiety. This man was, was uh, constantly bombarded by internal pressure and external pressure over his concern for the churches of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to study further the life of Paul because if you do, you'll see that the Thessalonian church was one of his greatest joys throughout his ministry. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ and they loved Paul from the start and they continued on in their faith and in their love. And it was the reality of eternal life in them that brought Paul tremendous comfort, even in the midst of his afflictions and his distresses. Now, what is Paul referring to when he, when he mentions these distresses, when he mentions these afflictions? Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 18 just briefly. Acts chapter 18, why don't you turn there in your Bible? It won't be up on the screen. And as you're turning, I'll just set the context. Verses 1 through 4 inform us of Paul's travels from Athens to Corinth. And when he gets there, he meets the uh, famous couple now. They're famous. <laughs> they surely weren't then, I'm sure. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla. And he begins to exercise his trade of tent making, of working leather alongside them to provide financially for himself. Yes, Paul was a part of the workforce of his day from time to time. Sometimes he lived entirely off of the support of others, and other times he worked. So just understand, Christian, whether you're in the workforce or you're called to full-time vocational ministry, you still got to preach the gospel. You still got to preach the gospel. Now, that's, of course, an aside. Let's get to verses 5 through 17. It says this, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word and solemnly bearing witness to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And been, but when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean, and from now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a God-fearer, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the, in the night by a vision, do not be afraid. 
but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And so Paul stayed there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God amongst the Corinthians. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, then see to it yourselves. I'm not willing to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. And so again, we see the typical pattern. Paul goes to the synagogue, preaches the gospel. The Jews, by and large, reject him. Some Corinthians, or some Gentiles, rather, some Jews believe. And then the Jews get jealous. They bring him before the magistrate. They throw a political charge at him. Again, as we saw last week, uh, this man is teaching um, things that are contrary to the law, saying that men must worship a god that isn't Caesar, essentially. And of course, this is, the, this is characteristic of the typical chaos of the adversary, Satan, working through people, attempting to cut the train off, the train that is Paul's gospel ministry. This incredible machine, this force to be reckoned with that the enemy has taken notice of. And Paul was al- always deeply affected by this. He, he wasn't um, cold to this. He, he was in deep distress and affliction. Going back to our text, now that we understand the exact nature of this distress and this affliction, we can see that Paul was able to be comforted because of the reality of eternal life in the Thessalonians despite all the hardship that he faced. He says in verse 7b through 8, I was comforted about you through your faith, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. He was so completely refreshed by the evidence of eternal life in this church, it was as if he felt totally renewed for the gospel ministry. He was utterly revitalized to continue on in what the Lord had called him to do. He was reassured that his labor was not in vain. Now, verse 8 here is the key to this passage. You have to understand that the Greek word translated live here comes from a root word, which just literally means not to be dead, right? So Paul is actually using a figure of speech here. For now we really live. Paul's not dead, but he feels like dying. He feels like dying. And he uses this figure of speech to express the rejuvenating joy that the Spirit of God within him provided through the faith of the Thessalonians. Again, Paul was not indifferent to the Thessalonians. He wasn't just some traveling preacher that preached a great message, collected his check, and moved on. That was not the Apostle Paul. Everywhere he went, he preached the true message of the gospel, regardless of what it cost him personally. And he cared very much about the follow-through. He cared very much as to whether or not those hearers of the gospel were actually doing the Word of God. And this is important to note. 
So it's important to note, because Paul uses a strong figure of speech to describe this life-giving effect that the faith of the Thessalonians had on him. And why is this significant for you and me? Well, as a pastor and as a representative of our leadership, a pastor's greatest comfort stems from the maturation of his people. It is the ultimate objective of a pastor to bring people to maturity in Christ. Listen to Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. The Apostle Paul says to the Galatian church, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. In labor until Christ is formed in you. That describes the pastor's heart. Hebrews 13, 17 is instructive for the people. Listen to what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. The people can only bring about joy in the pastor's heart through obedience to the Word of God. The godly pastor's concern is always the faith of his people, and his joy in ministry will be heavily influenced upon the people's willingness to obey the Word of God and the subsequent maturation that comes from that willing obedience to the Word of God. Listen to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. The Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah to a wayward Israel. If you are willing and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. When the people of God are willingly obedient to God, they demonstrate the evidence of eternal life right now. And this brings the leadership of the church and God tremendous joy. But it's not just any joy. And this is my point. This joy is supernatural. It is supernatural and it provides an incredible amount of comfort in the face of insurmountable odds. And it produces a quality of life that is not available to unbelievers. And furthermore, on verse 8, this is where it gets extremely interesting. As I said, the Apostle Paul uses this figure of speech for now we really live, but then he connects it with a conditional. If you stand firm in the Lord. There's incredible inferences that can be made off of this combination of words. And this points us to a foundational truth and a deep spiritual reality. Again, I said, this is personal correspondence. This is not a theological treatise, okay? The deep spiritual reality, again, concerns the qualitative difference between possessing eternal life and not possessing eternal life. As I said earlier, the way in which Paul uses the term zao, which means to live, in verse 8 suggests that Paul's intent is to express how the good news of the faith of the Thessalonians has revitalized him. But the source of all of that was the faith of the Thessalonians, which by its very definition is supernatural. By its very definition, faith is a supernatural gift of God that fundamentally, listen, that fundamentally transforms the way that we live, 
and the experience of life. Let me say that one more time. The divine persuasion referred to as faith is a supernatural gift of God that when it's given to you will fundamentally transform the way that you live and the way that you experience life. And this is not available to non-believers. Look at verse 8 again. It was because of the supernatural gift of faith that Paul was able to have this perspective. When he was imprisoned, if we turn to Philippians, just turn to Philippians just briefly. This just came into my mind. Philippians chapter 1 is a great example of the truth that I just said manifest. The experience of Paul's life, the way that he lived his life because of the faith that the Lord had even given him is put on display in Philippians chapter 1. Now, he's writing this while he's in prison. Let me just ask you a question. If you were locked up, (laughs) would this describe you? Now, I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. In other words, me going to jail has turned out for greater progress of the gospel, brothers, so that my chains in Christ have become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Let me say it again. The faith that God gives you should and will transform the way you live your life and your experience of that life. This is the key point of my entire sermon. The experiential aspects of eternal life are not simply an eschatological reality. They're not simply something that we wait for to come to us in the future. No. The benefits of eternal life begin the moment you are born again because your eternal life begins the moment that you're born again. Do you understand that? This should bring you incredible joy in the midst of your sufferings and in the midst of your persecutions. And I've talked to many of you over this week. I know that many of you are suffering right now. I know that many of you are going through real hard times. And I hope that you are refreshed by what I'm saying to you. I hope that this message is penetrating your heart as I speak it. Because this is what's been made available to you by the blood of the Lamb. And it's our adversary's greatest joy when he makes us forget that. Remember what I said last week, Satan will come after you if you are being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. John 17, 3. Our Lord defines eternal life as this. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This shows us that the authentic Christian life is not just one of doing a lot of stuff. (laughs) It's one of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. The terrifying words found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, say this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy? And in your name did we not cast out demons? 
And in your name do we not do many mighty miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Christianity is not simply about doing good works. It's about knowing the Lord of all goodness. So, we see in our text that when Paul hears of the good news about the Thessalonians evidencing their possession of eternal life, he is again reminded of the power of the Lord in salvation and the permanent reality of eternal life that accompanies that salvation. And it therefore encouraged him to continue moving forward in the ministry of the gospel despite the tremendous difficulties that lay ahead. And you know, the Apostle Paul consistently taught about this qualitative difference in eternal life. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, when we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Remember, faith will change the way that you live. If it doesn't change the way you live, you don't have faith. At least not according to the biblical definition. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if, conditional, if anyone is actually in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and following show us this new creation comes with new attitudes. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's a categorical statement. You're either in that category or out of that category. And he says, if we live by the Spirit, which is characteristic of those who are in that category who belong to Christ, let us also walk in step with the Spirit. Here's what I'm saying. The new quality of life is life in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And that, my beloved, is eternal life right now. And Satan wants you to forget that. He can't take your salvation from you. It's not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. Well, you know what he can do, like we said last week? He can make your life a living hell, and he can render you ineffective in your service for the Lord. And furthermore, he can make you forget the benefits that the blood of the Lamb has purchased on your behalf. And that will change the way you view the Lamb. That may make you hardened. That may begin to make you angry. That may begin to make you upset with God. Go to chapter 3 of Hebrews. Turn to chapter 3 of Hebrews, and let's look at verses 12 through 14. Chapter 3 of Hebrews give us a strong warning. Verse 12. See to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But 
encourage one another day after day, as long as, as, it, as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Can you describe your life as one who is holding fast? Is that strength of grip being challenged at the moment? If it is, remember, you have all the benefits available from God at your possession or at, at your possession right now. You can access the treasuries of the Lord through His Word. I want to remind you that if you continue to be willingly obedient to the Word of God, then the qualitative difference of the life of the Spirit will be manifest in your life. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about staying in the blessing of God necessarily, the way it's commonly referred to. I'm referring to what the Apostle Paul refers to. Listen again to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17. There's a relationship here. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you do not do the things that you want to do. Listen to the words about this relationship between willing obedience and life in the Spirit directly from the Lord Jesus Christ's mouth. John chapter 14, verses 21 through 24. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. And he who does not love me does not keep my words. The the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. When we are not willing and obedient to our Lord, we do not walk in the path of life that God honors and blesses. We must. It matters to God very much how you live. You know, I think um, this is my personal opinion, so take it or leave it. But just as the Jews made an idol out of the law during Jesus' day, I think that the church of Jesus Christ, by and large, has made an idol of grace. Apparently, many of you think that as well. God cares how you live. He's given you the grace to obey His commandments. The new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 37 says that He will give us His Spirit and His Spirit will cause us to walk in His statutes. We're not condemned when we fall short. That's because of the blood of the Lamb. But make no mistake about it. Do not idolize the grace of God and thus trample upon it. He cares how you live because He loves you. 
And when Paul saw the fruits of this new life in the Thessalonians, he was invigorated, he was revitalized to continue in his ministry. This is what encouraged the Apostle Paul to continue, and this is what encourages all of us to continue when we are growing in the faith and love of the Lord Jesus Christ and thus evidencing the possession of eternal life now. Finally, the last thing I'll say here on verse 8 is that conditional phrase, if you stand firm in the Lord, this is the doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. And basically, the reason why Paul brings this up is because eternal life is for eternity. How do you know you're a saved Christian? Make it to the end. Make it. Make it and make it, depending upon the Lord. We must cling to Him. We must depend on Him. We must not allow in any of us, as Hebrews 3 said, for there to exist an evil and unbelieving heart. If we don't get our way, God is still good. God is still good. And guess what? He knows what's coming five minutes from now. And you know who doesn't? You. We can trust Him. We can trust Him. Let's move on to verse 9 and 10 for time's sake. In verse 9, Paul expresses his gratitude and essentially says, there is nothing I can do to repay you. He says, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God because of you? I cannot repay you. I cannot render anything to God that would even equal what you have given to me by evidencing eternal life now. His joy was contingent upon the flock's response to being shepherded. Again, Paul had plenty of difficult pastorates. Just read 1 Corinthians. The whole thing is about him correcting and reproving them. But this joy-filled relationship between Paul and the Thessalonians was one that Paul just simply could not thank God enough for. And it changed the way that he lived because it led him to pray for them continually. Look at verse 10. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul prays continually that he would be able to come see him despite the adversary's best attempt to keep him from seeing them. And he also prays that he can come see them, not just to hang out with them, but to complete what is lacking in their faith. Literally in the Greek, it's to supply the things lacking in the faith of you. Now, this this phrase here reaches forward to chapter 4 and 5, which introduced us to the doctrinal section, which we'll be at in two weeks. But the aim of Paul's prayers for them was that the Lord would allow him to come to them so that they could have their faith properly adjusted to fit the biblical meaning of the gospel and all of its implications, applications, and significances for their life. Paul wants to supply the correct teaching about Christ that they desperately need. And even though he cannot do that directly at this moment, that does not prevent the apostle from fervently praying for them. Now, this passage provides a number of just general observations that we can make about prayer. Number one, prayer is an activity that can be done while simultaneously meeting the demands of life. And it should be done consistently. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, just on the other side of this page here, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Now, let me ask you a question. Is your idea of prayer on your knees with your hands like this, praying to God? That's not wrong. But if that's your definition of prayer only, then you've got it wrong. 
you can pray while simultaneously meeting the demands of life. You know, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah had a burden for his people, and uh, he had an opportunity to make King uh, Xerxes aware of what was going on in Jerusalem. The problem was is that when Nehemiah approached Xerxes, he remembered that because he was a cupbearer in the presence of the king, that if he looked sad or if he looked worried, that was punishable by death because he tasted the food of the king. So check this out. He walks up to Xerxes and he, and he does what I call a shotgun prayer. As he's walking to Artaxerxes, he says, Lord, help me. And then he begins to open up his mouth about the, uh, the conditions in Jerusalem. He didn't stop, hit his knees and go like this and begin to pray. He prayed simultaneously while meeting the demands of his life, and so should you. Number two, prayer is a characteristic, or it is characteristic, rather, of the pastor and those who stand firm in the Lord. Again, look at verse eight. He's referring to people who are in the Lord, of which Paul himself is also in the Lord. Therefore, we can observe that God's people are praying people. Number three, the heart of prayer is defined by a passionate longing to see the will of God done in the lives of other people. Chapter 4 of First Thessalonians, the third verse, tells us what a part of the will of God is. It says the will of God is this, your sanctification. God wants his people to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be set apart from the world. And so we should pray towards these ends that our brothers and sisters would be set apart in the way that they lived their life and the quality in which they experienced that life. We should pray that the truth of the Word of God would be applied to the people of God. Number four, the requests and supplications of prayer should be done with specificity. Notice in verse 10, the object of Paul's prayer are twofold. Number one, fellowship. He says in verse 10a, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. He wants fellowship. And number two, for edification. He says, and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul prayed towards these ends often as he viewed the edification of Christ's church as his primary reason for existence. That was the way in which he could glorify God magnificently. Listen to just a few verses here before we close. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. It is Christ we proclaim, <clears throat> admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 25. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And Romans chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be strengthened, that is, to be mutually encouraged while among you by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This is very relevant to you and I, because the Apostle Paul is an example of a man who was on a mission. He was on a mission for Jesus Christ. He was singularly focused. Prayer was what Paul focused his mind on in between ministering the word. And he taught his disciples to do the very same thing. Listen to Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings, always striving for you in his prayers that you may stand complete and fully assured in all the will of God. 
And so my question for you is, do you pray with these objectives in your mind? Are you praying that the faith of your brothers and sisters would grow into a vibrant and healthy faith, one that evidences the fruit of the Spirit of God? You know, I think so often our prayers are very self-centered, and I'm guilty of this. I think so often we're very self-centered in our prayer life, and our prayers become cold and mechanistic and formulaic. Well, I better make sure that I pray this particular way because that's the only way that God honors. Our prayers begin to lack that passionate desire to see the will of God affected here on the earth through the church of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1 as we close and look at one of these prayers by the Apostle Paul. Chapter 1 of Colossians, starting in verse 9, going through verse 14. <clears throat> Let's just make some observations here. It says, For this reason, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. What an incredible content of prayer. We have the idea of persistence in verse 9. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you. We have the commitment to intercessory prayer. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you, so to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He's praying that they would grow in the knowledge of Christ. He's not praying that their bank, account would, bank accounts would be fattened, that they would have no stress in their life, that everything would go perfect. He's praying that they would be willing and obedient to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God. So I ask you, Brothers and sisters, let's pray this way. Let's focus on spiritual qualities and not just material blessings. There's nothing wrong to ask for material well-being. But let's not forget the things that are eternal. Let's focus on building one another up in the most holy faith so that we can come to experience the eternal life right now and thus glorify the Lord together as one people united under the banner of the great commission of making disciples. This is our Lord's command, and it was Paul's desire to work it out through faith and love. And if it was Paul's desire and the Thessalonians' response, it should be ours also. Let's pray. Father, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the example that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the example that we have in godly men like Paul. Oh God, I thank you, Lord, for 
this group of people, Lord, that you've brought here today. And I pray, Spirit, that you would root this message deeply in our hearts, that our eternal life begins the moment that we are born again. The very moment all of the spiritual blessings in heaven are accrued to our account because of what the Lamb has done. God, I pray, Lord, if there are any in this room who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, God, that they would come to know Him. Even now, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, as we proclaim the Lord's death through the sacrament, God, I pray, Lord, that you would bring them into your kingdom now. I pray, God, that you would sanctify your people who do know you right now. For you are good and you hear us when we pray to you in Christ's name. Amen.